Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before. He's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape from week seven. I, I'm just making up the weeks at this point of quarantine <laughs> in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California from my basement featuring the style of wall-to-wall white carpeting last seen in Mark McGrath. Do you remember the music video for Under Pressure by Billy Joel? Oh God, yes. It was yeah, it me so much that, that's, that's what I'm looking at right now. <laughs> this is The Tully Show. I am your host Mike Tully joining me today from the comfy confines of his Los Angeles home, the host of Mark McGrath's 120, heard weekends on the 90s on 9 here on Sirius XM, the front man of Sugar Ray, the face of Cameo. Hello and welcome back, our dear friend, Mark McGrath. Michael Tully, what is up? Dude, you've caught me in the middle of technological hell. I mean, with all this quarantine stuff for us to work, as you know, uh, mm-hmm. my, my illiteracy has never been put more to the test than now during quarantine because... I don't know how to function. I can't use the apps. I can't send any video over. It's just been a nightmare. I'm so glad to see a friendly face that knows what he's doing. Uh, wow. You're in bad shape if I'm the, <laughs> the face of technological competence. Can I tell you a theory, though? I've heard a bunch of celebrities. I think it was Matt Damon, maybe, who um, I'm thinking of right now, who said that this theory that people stop maturing at the age at which they become famous because the world doesn't ask them to mature any more than that. So the people who get famous later in life maybe tend to be a little bit cooler than people that have fame handed to them at an early age. I have also noticed your technological prowess seems to cut off right around the point where... That, that is such an interesting uh, uh, philosophy and very accurate with me. You know, I mean, I can't write checks anymore. Like I got a business account. Like my, my growth has stopped at about, you know, 29 and everything hit, you know? So it's, it's, I totally subscribe to that. It's not all that shocking to me anymore when I encounter a celebrity with like an at AOL and at Yahoo and I'm like, right. (laughs) That was the last time you were responsible for handling your correspondence. And I didn't even I didn't even hook that one up either, believe it or not. So it's just a complete mess. So what are you doing? Like what are you what are you doing these days? Professionally, what are you up to? What do you do to keep your musical chop sharp? You know, I've been doing a lot, which is great. I was playing a lot of acoustic guitar. Uh mm-hmm. probably to a lot of people's chagrin because I'm starting to get a sugar A set down that I'm about to unleash on the world that people are gonna be really bummed on. I've never been technically prowess enough on acoustic guitar, I think, to deliver a set. But since the quarantine, I've said, you know what, I've got a lot of time. Let me, yeah. see, what, let me see what I can do. So I, I've always played a little bit of electric guitar on stage, but that thrashy punk stuff that you can get away with. But when it's just you yeah. and acoustic guitar, it's a different animal. So it's been kind of productive in that sense, Tully, which is kind of fun. How about you? That's fun. Uh, I... I, I squeeze the work that I absolutely have to do into the smallest possible window. And the rest of the time I just, I deal with a one-year-old who is now giving herself timeouts. Yeah. <laughs> She's, She's that literally smart. like, I got the drill. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're bummed. I fucked up. I shouldn't have swatted the cookie out of your hand. I'll be over there in my corner if you need me. And that's when you lose. When they do the reverse psychology on you. I mean, obviously she comes from smart stock. So she's starting really early on the Tully intelligence tip. What are you listening to these days? Um, you know, it's funny. I, uh, I, I discovered... Um, I mean, well, I, I always listen to everything. I know that's really lame for people to say that, but I'm truly a guy that listens to everything. Um, but I, I've been listening to a lot of rap I've been avoiding, like Drake and stuff like that, because my kids listen to it a lot. Obviously, I'm around them a lot. So, like, this guy, Sway Lee, if you ever heard of Sway Lee, he had this. I don't know if I've had the pleasure. He, he, he's actually very talented. He, he's, he's kind of the Post Malone. He had a huge hit called Sunflower with Post Malone. And he's super talented. So I'm mining these kind of mumble rap uh, hip-hop artists without the uh, curmudgeon old man, this isn't music kind of, uh, you, you know, like a, a preconception I'd go in with. And there's some surprisingly talented guys out there making music that couldn't play guitar if they have to. So uh, that's been interesting. Like Sway Lee, uh, obviously Post Malone, but a lot of people in that world. 
You saw the Post Malone, or at least some of the Nirvana thing he did. I thought it was great. I don't know about you. I'm not really a nitpicking, like, you know, precious uh, Seattle Nirvana. I I thought it was amazing, you know? What about you? Yeah. I, I watched 20 seconds of it, but just enough to be like, yeah, he can he can actually do this and then some. He's he's not Lil Wayne, you know, masquerading with a guitar. No, him. I mean, in the Royal Machines, the band I play with, like Dave Navarro, Josh Free, yeah. these all these incredible superstar artists uh, that for some reason let me play with them. Uh, and we we get a lot of guests come play. And Post Malone has done a few shows with us, and he's oh, okay. he's saying Alice in Chains, note for note, perfect. He's saying Pearl Jam. He did Nirvana, and we're all like who the hell is this guy? And this was back when he just had that white Iverson song and it was kind of like a hip hop thing. And like, we had no idea that he could rock and he destroyed the audience of like old rock people that weren't trying to hear a new hip hop guy. So he's super, super talented. So I've always known of his, his like classical rock prowess, but also his affinity for that music. Yeah. Here's, a question that maybe he doesn't have a good answer. Maybe it's not even a good, it's just a dumb question to begin with, but like lyrically vibe wise, persona wise, as someone who has checked out of a lot of contemporary music and certainly contemporary hip hop, like what sort of story or mystique are these guys selling? You know, like I thought a big part of Nirvana and I'm sure they said this in so many words was like the eighties just got more and more eighties until it was this like, plastic fantasy world that was just completely untethered to like the best beach party I ever went to or a cool frat party. It just was, it was, it had nothing to do with a life that anybody was living and Nirvana were the poster title people saying, I see bands on MTV and then I look in the mirror and I don't see any connection to that. And that's why everybody responded because we were like, yeah, that's not real. And then grunge had to become the most dirge, like, you know, torn up flannel needle hanging out of your arm thing that then that was sort of divorced from the real reality of, of America. What is in 2020, what is the, the story that these people are selling to kids that kids are connecting with? Well, that's, that's a really broad question. I think at the end of the day, that rebellion is always big. You know, these kids are all drinking lean, you know, uh, (laughs) you know what I mean? And like, you know, smoking weed and it's all about money and cars again. So like all of these people, the little pumps of the world, the, uh, uh, young thugs have turned into the '80s hair metal bands. They're showing their cars, their chicks, their money. You know, it's ironic. They've become the rock stars. Be- they, yeah. they, they've become those, you know, late '80s hair metal bands in the in the guise of like Takashi Six Nine or whatever the hell his name is. You know what I mean? So uh, I think just that's as the rock stars as, as the rock stars abdicated that and make a right. point of telling you, I've never thrown anything out of a hotel window. The rappers are like, well, then I'll fucking trash the place. We'll do it all day. A, it sounds like fun. Uh, we'd yeah. like to get all the women we can, and we'd like mm-hmm. to make a lot of money with minimal talent. Reminds me yeah. of a certain era. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I, I think it's funny to see it rear its uh, – its, you and I are both fans of that, so I wouldn't say ugly head. Rear its head again, just in a yeah. different format. You know, at the end of the day, people – young kids are always going to want to drink, say fuck you to the parents, and go out and party. It's just being done in a completely different manner of music now. Uh, if you even call it music. I mean, people are just on a computer going, beep, beep, bop, bop, boop, 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 Gucci gang, Gucci gang, Gucci gang, Gucci gang. Number one, one billion streams. And I'm like, whoa, you know? So for me to say to know where music is going would be uh, irresponsible. But for me to act like the new music isn't vibrant and valid to the young generation would be just as irresponsible. You know? I mean, I remember listening to Black Flag in the Clash in my bedroom and my mom and dad coming in going, this will never be popular. It's atonal. It's terrible. You know, and they were kind of right with their reference point back then. But 10 yeah. years later, Offspring, you know, Green Day and, and, and Pennywise made it the biggest music in the world. So it's kind of funny how it all goes cyclical. As long as your parents hate it and there's rebellion in it, it it's going gonna, it's gonna to fit the bill to a, a young generation. For the longest time, I thought I was so open-minded about music that my kid could never get into something that I couldn't kind of relate to and get into myself. It turns out the trick is if you just wait long enough to have kids, yeah. the music will become something you can hate. It will happen. It's bound yeah. to happen. You can't change the cycle of life, man. You know, now, if I had kids in my mid twenties, we would have been rocking out together, but that, that ship has long since sailed. Hey, what is, would you say is the biggest bill you ever got for, uh, from like a, a hotel above what you had agreed to pay when you got there just for damage? You know, we, I, 
I wasn't, I have this terrible thing where I respect other people on properties. Like even in my yeah. drunkest, most insane things that you've probably seen in video, <laughs> I, I, I was never a guy that like said, let's throw a TV out doing it. It's just kind of boring to me. You know what yeah. I mean? I'd rather do damage to myself than to things. Um, rock and roll. So that, yeah, that was my kind of rock and roll. I think a couple backstages, we got a little drunk and blacked out and like, We'd throw like, you know, uh, deli trays and stuff at the wall. I think we got a $1,000 bill once, which I was ashamed yeah. for. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because I wasn't really part of it. I kind of I was there at the start and I got out because I saw it was going dark. And I think they broke some shower heads and stuff. We're playing arenas, you know? And I, it's yeah. just like a bummer. It felt so cliched and lame. And I don't know. And, and, he, and these, this party stuff was why I got into the bands in the first place. It just, yeah. destruction of property never seemed like an accomplishment to me. Oh, uh, you have good parents. You're a good Irish Catholic boy. As soon as, it's, as soon as it got really crazy, you just got the hell out of there. It's not your fault that cold cuts stick to stick to the wall. They stick to anything. They stick to skin too. Believe it or not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my Irish guilt always had a hold on my uh, my conscience somehow. Yeah, yeah, I definitely, I definitely relate to that. Uh, it's like an electric fence around your mind. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I prepared another topic as I always try to do, and I'm going to go back to the the one hit wonder failed follow up well again, which is what we did last time. I wasn't expecting to do it again, but it, this came about very organically. I have a huge list People of love things it. that, I, you know, this one I'm I'm really really into because. As I say, I'm very strapped for time these days, and I have to, usually have to make time to research these things. This is one that, as soon as it popped in my head, I kind of had to start getting some answers. And so, I, this is a this one sort of wrote itself, as you know, pretentious songwriters will say from from time to time. I was listening to a uh, the the '80s countdown that I always listen to most weekends on the big '80s channel here on Sirius XM, and it was a countdown from eight, 1989. And there were two songs that I remember as one-hit wonders that were covers. And I realized that that is its own sort of subgenre of the one-hit wonder. That's the band that didn't even manage to write that the one hit. That is gnarly. You had yeah. a, your only hit song was a cover song. Yeah. Because you don't even get any residuals or royalties. And once that goes, it goes. Because if you write a song, you you know, hypothetically, if you wrote it, you get residuals and royalties the rest of your life. If you yeah. got a hit off a cover, you never get that, you know, that, that that pension the rest of your life, if you will, you know? Yeah. But you do, if it's a big enough one hit, get to keep, keep touring. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Alien, Alien Ant Farm, the best thing they ever could have done for themselves is cover that Michael Jackson song. I agree, but you know that song for the movies or, or just like the movies? Just like the movies. I, 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 they had, that was a great song. I thought they're a very underrated band. And I know there okay. are people point to, I mean, they're some of the Sugar Ray of the aughts. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, God, you know, which so I can really relate. But they had some great songs, man. They, they really did. I, um, yeah, I made it through a whole bunch of these because I came up with a, a whole bunch of examples and I didn't actually get around to figuring out what the follow-up single was from Alien Ant Farm. Clearly, you would have been able to guess it. Yeah. Um, but uh, here, I'll play you the first one. Well, wait, wait, before we begin, I, yeah. I, have to, I have to say thank you for posting that Len performance because I, I <laughs> we talked about the last one. I never yeah. saw a live Len performance. And then yeah. seeing that on some like, like local Canadian cable guys thing uh, – you could probably see why there weren't a lot of live Len performances. With so all due respect, people sent me to. I didn't go find that. I li thank you to the listener who brought that to my attention. Yes, Are you thank about you. The one, where, the one where he was dressed as a clown. Yeah, the, the clown, and they had the two rappers come out that were no part of the video at all. No, and right. dominated so the majority of the live performance. Yeah. You know. I guess the story with that was they're on a, a show that was kind of seems like it was maybe like the Tom Green show of Canada. Yeah. Kind of yeah. lane, lane that it was sitting in. And I guess the record label had told them to stop acting like clowns. So okay. they responded to that by doing. Their tell me what to do. Yeah, exactly. threaten me with a good time. <laughs> you don't tell. You don't tell Len how to do Len, and so they literally came out as clowns the next time they performed, and it was on television. That's supposedly the story. And then the label said, "You know what? You are officially a one-hit one." You know what I mean? You can't bite the hand that feeds you. But that sounds like a bit of self-sabotage as well, which we talked about. You know, when yeah. you get success and you're like, mm -hmm. "What am I doing here? I don't belong here." And then yeah. you sabotage it yourself so you know why you didn't right. succeed. That happens a lot. 
there was a band I really like a lot that were like in the just as hair metal crossed over into grunge. There were a couple of bands that kind of successfully merged the two, in my opinion, anyway. And there was a band that had this female lead singer and she'd had a modeling career. So she had the look and they were cool. And it was like famously uh, publicly rejected what she perceived as romantic overtures from record label executives and even climbed up on top of one of their desks and peed on it. You're talking about the nymphs, aren't you? I am, as a matter of fact, talking about the the nymphs. Inger Lore it did that from the nymphs. Yep. Yeah. Did you ever listen to the nymphs? They're the, such a good band. I, the nymphs were an amazing band. A good friend of mine, Josh Richmond, who was like the, the mayor of Hollywood, it's been forever, uh, introduced me to the nymphs and Inger Lore, as a matter of fact. She yeah. peed on Tom Zutat's desk. Now, okay, Tom, who's that? Tom Zutat, if that sounds familiar, the A&R guy who signed one Guns N' Roses. So ah. he, she pissed on a guy's desk who could have made this band a multi-platinum international, you know. And so he obviously didn't take it that well. And the rest is history for the Nymphs, you know. Yeah. Do you know what's funny? Just such a crazy life I've been able to lead because of the stuff that I do professionally. One day, so Sirius has had three locations here in Los Angeles. We're in the nicest one by far now. The first one was a very grungy rehearsal studio. Yeah, it was a swing house, right? And we had a closet. And one day I got bored enough that I started cleaning out our closet. And through the fucking wall, I hear a song. And I'm like, I know that song. What is that? And sure enough... 15 years after their one and only album came out, the nymphs, for some reason, were playing Sad and Damned on the other side of the wall. Insane. And, yeah, Insane. I, I got, and that would have been the place where they rehearsed. Swing House was the, the cool guy spot. I, I, I really love that place. We made some records at Swing House, believe it or not. Um, oh, did you? Yeah. Uh, but I remember the guys, I think it was Chris was his name. Really, What was the guy's name? Dark Hair. Remember, was this Chris? Oh, the Christopher the Minister? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But nice guy. I mean, look, you probably had more dealings than I did, but like, I, I like Swing House there anymore as a property, you know? The property is still there. So our new studio is around the corner from there. We've come full circle. We're right back where we started. And the, neighborhood, is, the neighborhood has just gone full Dubai. Like there's just, it's, yeah. there's so little resemblance to what it was. I don't know what's in there now, but somehow the actual building itself has resisted the wrecking ball. Oh, yeah, but so I, I guess there's still rehearsal spaces in there, you know? I, 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 don't, I don't know about that. And Swing House itself, the brand and, and, and you know, Phil, the owner, moved it to uh, Silver Lake or something like Phil, that. Phil, that's it. Yeah, Phil, Phil's name. There you go. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Wow, yeah. Man, a lot great, of, great characters. Nymphs, great nymphs call, man. When I, a nymph, a legendary band. Jay got a gigantic record deal, mm-hmm. and then she pissed on the record deal, <laughs> <laughs> literally and figuratively. You know, yeah. that's, that's awesome. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sometimes, yeah, rebellion. You win some, you lose some. Yeah, it's so, it's, it's a slippery slope where you, know, you might have a historical sure uh, like uh, thing you do that just might be in the annals of history as in something insane as opposed to something you got paid for and made right. a career. You know what sometimes, I mean? Sometimes you bite the head off a dove in a record label meeting and a legend is born, and sometimes you piss on Guns N' Roses saying our guy's head and the only two people on earth who remember you are... <laughs> yeah, are you and I, and a career <laughs> dies. <laughs> the Nymphs is a really, really good album. I, I like it. It is. So one of the nice things is even if your uh, one-hit wonder song is a cover is that you can have a touring career for a really long time. And sure enough, I know the name of this band and I can remember them, I think performing on television still when I was a a kid. So they made a good living. Most of the songs we're going to be talking about are in our like eighties, nineties wheelhouse. But the first one goes all the way back to, uh, to 1962. See if you can guess, I don't think you'll have any trouble guessing. And maybe you won't remember the name of the, the name of the band, but you'll know their signature song. Hold on here. Uh, is that from 62? Am I supposed to know that? What decade was that? Yeah, that's 1962, and you're definitely not supposed to know that. That song did not do very well for the tokens. Oh, uh, God, you know what? 
Yeah. It had a little bit, it's, a little bit of lion sleep tonight in there, man. Yeah. What I love about that era is the shamelessness with which when you have a signature song, there was going to be two or three more singles. As somebody who loves Roy Orbison, there's like six great Roy Orbison songs. And then there's six songs that sound quite a bit like the other six. <laughs> well, what a doubt. Copy your own success. You know what I mean? There was no shame in anybody's game at, at, at that point. So, yeah, they, they having had success with The Lion Sleeps Tonight, which I think is like a, there's a tangled history of who wrote that and who gets credit and it's traditional and shit like that. They tried to go in a different ethnic direction with Juanina or whatever the hell was going right. on there. And, right. and it did not, it did not uh, stick. They went from having a number one song to having a number 55 follow up. Now what I need to know, I don't know the tokens. I don't know anything about them, but apparently not a guy from the tokens, the tokens uh, produced a bunch of people. Um, He's so fine. And one fine day by the chiffons mm-hmm. produced by the tokens um, and tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree by Tony Orlando and Dawn. See you in September by the happenings all produced. That's a by- great song. See you in September. What was, was the least thing of the tokens named Jay something? Do you know? Are, are you thinking of the Jay and the Americans guy? I, I am, but are, is there any kind of correlation? I mean, I, my token's history is not that sharp. No, 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 no. Originally featuring member Neil Sedaka. I know I'm supposed to know who that is. Oh, Neil Sedaka. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. Jay Siegler, I think, became the lead singer of the tokens. I don't know if the classic era of the tokens is right. Jay Siegler. Maybe Neil Sedaka had already gone on to being Neil Sedaka by the time the lion slept tonight. But, but Neil Sedaka was a member in good standing at one time of the tokens. Seems that way. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean that that should be knowledge. I know. I mean, I, 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 really? I, I, I yeah, because but I thought the tokens were an East Coast. Neil Sadaka was a Brill Building guy, so yeah, a lot. There was a lot of crossover those guys because they all went to the Brill Building to work. I know. And then know. you know they they'd write a song and there you know there'd be levels of, of floors of bands working. But what an incredible time to be alive, man! The Brill Building Factory. You know, I know, I know, because I like factory style songwriting. That turns some people off, but you know, I'm a, I'm a formula guy all day. Formulas exist for a reason. Well, so, if, you, and, if, you, if you look what the Brill Building turned out, the classics, you know, to, Tommy James and Sean Dells, I mean, mm-hmm. Crystal Blue Persuasion. I mean, I mean, if that's factory music, well, then count me in, bro. You, you know what right. I mean? And then I don't Carol know. Carol King we, started back then, you know, I mean. I, I don't know if, if Lou Reed was a Brill Building guy, but he was one of those things. And it's very interesting how he's like the most you know, uh, alternative, he's the, the godfather of alternative music, but at the same time, by his own admission, he learned, I love this idea that you have to learn the rules before you can break them. And it's a lot more, it's a lot more fun breaking them and it's a lot easier to break them, but it's always better off if you get the fundamentals straight. So, you know, the rules that you're, that you're breaking. And when you think about, you know, pale blue eyes and Sunday morning and femme fatale and stuff like that. That's obviously somebody who knew how to write a corny, straightforward pop song. Very melodic, very melodic. But then you look yeah. when, like his later years, when he got went to that, uh, what's the name of that record? It's your, your, it's skipping my name. It's, it's unlistenable. The heavy metal box or the, the metal, metal I, machine music. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, I mean, to, to think that that was once in the Brill Building, you know, it's just, that is what, that's a testament to you, you gotta, you know, you gotta know the rules before you break them. Do you know what, though? It's funny, uh, I talked about that on a solo episode of the show that I did, where I, I just um, played through a bunch of the stuff that is alleged to be the worst music ever recorded, and Lou Reed died with a poker face. Lou Reed went to, you right. know, his grave in a, in a lot of ways, but specifically when it came to that, saying, no, everybody thought that was contractual obligation. No, man, that's an album. I love that. That came out exactly the way I wanted it to. And I'd never really spent time with it. So I went into it cold, like on air. And I was like, you know what? I kind of could listen to this. It kind of does weirdly make sense as like ambient, you know, proto-German can kind of. Of that era, definitely too. I mean, did he just turn on the guitar and walk outside of the studio and smoke? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Did he... <laughs> did he do it to get out of a contract? Most likely, it's a, it didn't need to be a double album. But did he actually think it was cool? I think maybe. And like, did he ever listen to it years later? I would bet he actually fucking did. Well, he was also like Lou Reed is all about art and kind of came that Warhol factory 
And like you yeah. said, the poker face will never know. It might have been a living, walking, breathing experiment that's still an art piece today that we're talking about. Was that real? Yeah. Was it fake? Did he have material before he walked in the studio or did he just turn the guitar on and go take a break? So well, there's no, mater- there's no material. I was flipping through it and it was virtually identical. Any point I came up on. Is there any, any structure at all to anything on that? No. I've never listened to it top to bottom. Uh uh-uh. I, I don't know. I wouldn't say nobody's ever listened to it top to bottom, but they were, <laughs> they were on acid. They were on acid and they were having a conversation at the same time. It's like, uh, it's like, is, is Sandinista the triple album from The Clash? Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? If you're if you're coming down, if you're on the downward slope of psychedelics and you just need to have something on in the room while you kind of, you know, fiddle with things and smoke cigarettes, it's cool for that. Yeah, but good, that goes right to like a bummer place, though. You know, I mean, if you're like yeah. a good high, that would put you in an immediate bummer. But like you said, I've heard so many things that it was, it was fulfilling a contract. He didn't yeah. care. He was jumped out. You know, I... I then he thought it was genius, you know. But it's I, possible, I, I, it's I possible always, the answer is all of the above. Thank you. That's it. Why? Why even? Why even worry about it? And yeah. how we got for the tokens to Lou Reed is that's that's what this show is all about. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, let me see. Coming in quite a bit closer to the Lou Reed spectrum of things than the token side is another one hit wonder and a failed follow-up single. My guess is you'll be able to guess this one by the general overall attitude and uh, moxie of the performer. Hold on here. You, you, you stumped me on that, dude. There's a lot going on and a lot. It's, yeah. a, it's a powerful vocal and obviously yep. sing. Um, I can't tell if it's a guy or a girl still. I can't. Oh, wow. Okay. The, uh, the follow-up to her one and only successful single by far because the night. Oh, that was Patty. Uh, Patty Smith. Patty Smith. God. Yep. You know, she's the one artist. I know the album Horses speaks yep. to everybody. And I, yeah, I, I know. I, I've just never grasped on to Patty Smith. I know. Beyond Because the Night, which I saw early on MTV, which was a video they played a lot. Um, Call Me a Horrible Human Being for Living. <laughs> I know if you make fun of her, not fun, mm-hmm. if you don't love her, Bob Dylan, uh, you know, R.E.M. or the Sonics, yeah. you, you can't like music, but she just never spoke to me. So that voice didn't resonate with me originally because because the night was a little lower, you know, because the night belongs right. to, you know. So. Well, you know the story with Because the Night, right? Bruce Springsteen wrote it. Right, and I I had the story a little long over the, a little wrong over the years. I thought that that was left off of Born to Run, which I always found incredible because Born to Run only has nine songs on it. And I'm yeah. like, wow, man, like you got to you got to calm down on your self-editing when you're cutting that one. You could have used that one, yeah. To not even have an even 10 songs. It was uh, the next one. It was Darkness on the Edge of Town, which is a double album, which makes a lot more sense. And at that point, it was a chorus and a couple of mumbled lyrics. And I guess it was a bit of a favor. It's uh, Jimmy Iovini. Am I saying that right? Jimmy Iovine? Jimmy Iovine, right. Is engineering Bruce and at the same time has his first um, production gig with patty smith and is like you know it would really help me if she had a hit bruce i know you're not going to use that thing and um i always thought it was more of a token co-write credit but she actually wrote all the lyrics beyond kind of because the night oh so she is credited as a songwriter on that song and deservedly so because they're i think at a later date bruce may have uh written some lyrics and recorded his own version but he she was not covering a song that was finished she finished a song that was that was chords in the title because it feels like she owns it and it doesn't feel like a springsteen cover i've heard of the springsteen covers and you can tell it comes especially with the lyrics you know yeah Um, um have you heard bruce perform it yes i have I have. Yeah. I heard I it be like a stripped version. down acoustic version of it. It was, it was beautiful. It was nice. Yeah. It's so crazy the way that money works in, in, in music, or at least used to work. I remember Especially hearing, that. Yeah. Hearing from her that, because she's always sort of scrapped along and been, you know, uh, kind of a hand to mouth performer, that she, uh, in an interview that I read, mentioned that for a couple of years she was floated by the fact that Bruce at the height of his born to born in the USA fame put out a double album. It was live 75 85 
and he finally released a live version of it. And she said that her and her husband lived modestly for a couple years off of the royalties that she got from that one song on that one Bruce double album. And when you hear that, it just makes you think, how much money was Bruce making? I, I right, and but and modestly, let's 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 be honest. I mean, she probably was making six figures a year in the eighties off that because Bruce, you know. I mean, it, it just—I always wonder that on residuals and royalties on movies and things, because like I've been in a I couple, know, I know. I've been in a couple of dumb movies, and I'll get like five grand every quarter for some movies I've done. I'm like, what does Tom Cruise get? My God, you know. I'm desperate to know. One of these days, I need to actually make a mental note of this. I need to get somebody who's like a Hollywood accountant on this oh. show because I don't want names. I don't care. I no. do not care how much money Keanu Reeves has in his bank account. Right. I just want to know. If you were X caliber, you know, like what is a Steve Gutenberg still pulling on a monthly basis? What's a Michael Keaton getting on a monthly basis? And what is a Jack Nicholson getting on a monthly basis? And you can even generalize it. A list, B list. What are they getting royalties? But back to Patti Smith, which is kind of cool. She had a song late eighties called people have the power. Mm -hmm. You remember that song? It was just a great song. And it just, it, it it, it was just something very magical about it. And when um, the Eagles of death metal, uh, went back to Paris and played with U2 after the Bataclan thing. They came out to that song. People have the power. I can still see Jesse had a white suit on. and he, I don't know if you've seen the video of it. It's really powerful with U2 performing with Eagles of Death Metal. Them coming back, I think it was a month, maybe two months after the Bataclan event. And yeah. I always remember that Patti Smith song because of that. So little, little just a side, uh, side, side, uh, uh, you know, just a little side note, side factoid, but, um, that's so what we are. We are supposed to all say that Patty Smith is amazing and horses changed our lives. And I agree with you that it doesn't really do do all that much for me. But I can, in all honesty, tell you that um, sometime in the mid 2000s, I got my hands on free tickets to go see her perform at the Bowery Ballroom. And she had to at least be 50 at that point. Yeah. And mm-hmm. seeing her live, I, you could you could really get it to think. Why? She was, Why? She was such an authoritative person. You know the thing I remember, and it could have been affected, but it just seemed to come really natural to her. She spat a lot. Spat. And it was just, yeah. And yeah. she was just like, she's like that cool, smart punk, just completely owned the stage. And she's like this middle-aged mother who, you know, has never tried to be a sex symbol, who's just working the stage and spitting everywhere. And I know I can't sell this. I know this doesn't sell at all for me to say that, but it was uh, it was an enthralling performance, despite the fact that I really didn't care for the music. Well, her pedigree is, is perfection. I mean, she was Robert Maplethorpe's best friend. She I know. She came out of that CBGB's theme, but obviously she wanted to be a star because she signed a major label deal and was working with Jimmy Iovine. So. Yeah. She, I, there's a lot of complexities and layers to her, so I, I'm uh, I, I know what you're saying about authoritative. You know, I don't think she was a one one trick pony, if you will. I think right. she would she would have been okay with playing stadiums and okay with playing CBGBs the rest of her life. Right. Okay, with those two out of the way, more curiosities, we can get into the stuff that's a little bit more in our personal wheelhouse. Like I said, there are a bunch of things about researching this that I found interesting. There's uh, a couple of acts that hopefully we'll have time to get to that I find very remarkable in regard to this subject, One Hit Wonders, whose hits were were covers. There's also a couple of songs um, and artists who have come up on this show before in other contexts. I think we played this song in uh, one, like the first or second One Hit Wonders um song that uh, episode that you and I did together I okay. therefore am fairly certain you're going to recognize this bad boy right here uh, I'm old for two so you're giving me too much credit <laughs> Let's see. You know, I, I, I know the song, and, and yeah. it, it's it, is it oh it's not OMD is it? It's not OMD because they yeah they their song their hits were originals. You're not but, too too far off. Are you not saying Spandau Ballet? Are you? I'm definitely not saying Spandau Ballet. Listen to that album. Kind of disappointed. I expected more. And and, and that and, uh, 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 is uh, uh, who who is that? I, I, that is. I love the acts from the early new wave era who went out of their way to sound bored when they sang. And I oh. think nobody, nobody typified that more than soft cell. 
Ah, yes, of course. Yeah. You know what I realized in looking into that, that um, I'll cut this out. What I realized in looking into that is that I knew Tainted Love is a cover. It's not one cover. It's two covers, right? Because it's Tainted Love and it's also Where Did Our Love Go? I realized that I didn't know if I knew the original song, Tainted Love. Do you know it? You know, I don't. I can't say I do. That's interesting. I don't know who did it for sure. Do you? Here, do you? Quick, yeah, take a quick listen to uh, this. Four million views on this. So other people other than us know Gloria Jones. Here, check this out. Yeah, in case you were wondering where Fine Young Cannibals came from. I was going to say, in case, you know, good thing. I mean, that little <laughs> boom, 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 do-do-do, good thing. That's all I heard immediately, you know? Shameless. Absolutely shameless. I wonder if she's English, and that was like an English hit, like an R&B English hit. That's why Soft Cell knows it. That's why Fine Young Cannibals kind of copped it. You Let's know, see. I'm, I'm And curious. we don't know. And we don't know. it. That's a really good point uh american singer songwriter from los angeles who first found success in the uk being there recognized as the queen of northern soul well there you go because that there 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 is a relationship there and Mm -hmm. ironically i wasn't even thinking of soft cells being a one-hit wonder because as i've said to you all every time we're doing k-rock gave us Mm -hmm. a steady diet of soft cell i know 40 soft cell songs so in my head, which I've got to get out of when we're doing these things, because I know, like, I know. I know Sex Dwarf wasn't a top ten hit, you know, but in L.A. it was, which is, it's, yeah. uh, it's hey, very fascinating. Hey, sex just like matters to me, okay? Yeah. <laughs> but just like this this girl, Gloria Jones, did you say, did the original Tainted Love? Was that her name? Gloria Jones. Gloria Jones. So, like, she uh, meant so much to, you know, Mark Allman. And uh, obviously, uh, Roland Gift and, and Fine Young Cannibals and stuff. Interesting. Very interesting. Mark Allman, I've always loved, dude. I, I've loved his solo stuff. I read his autobiography. That's all crazy. I would, I would read that. Uh, Gloria Jones was, at least at one point, a keyboardist and vocalist in T-Rex. She and Mark Bolin were in a committed rela- uh, romantic relationship and had a child together. Well, see, if you're the queen of Northern Soul, you're not just visiting the U.K., I mean, Northern right. Soul, you know, I mean, the Verve. Yeah, they've wrote, adopted you. Yeah, the Verve wrote an album called Northern Soul. So it's a very British uh, terminology, you know. So um, yeah. it's interesting. I, it's funny that I kind of brought that up. I go, was there some kind of UK connection? Because, you know, the, the Fine Young Cannibals, song, that's a good thing. Too. I mean, they got a couple hits out of that riff. What was the other one? Because it's. Uh, She drives me crazy. Of course, yeah. But I think there was a third one. It doesn't matter. No, it does matter. That's why we're doing this. It matters. (laughs) We'll think of it. Okay. While we ponder that, you'll have no trouble identifying this uh, this next one right here. I know you love it when I say that. (laughs) I know, man. It's just a setup for failure every time. Here we go. Now, Tully? Yeah. Was that not a charting hit? Because certainly MTV played the living hell out of that Quiet Riot song. I had a feeling you were going to say that. Okay, depends on how you want to look at it. Yeah. After after the number five success of Come On, Feel the Noise, and as we all know, um, the the first metal album to go number one on the Billboard charts, uh, Metal Health peaked at number 31. So obviously, you know, it, off the strength of Bang Your Head, but certainly I think the video uh, uh, moves records as well. You know, it kept Quiet Riot around for a while. I think that record ended up selling five, six million copies, which, you know, which, it, it, which was so much. And then they had a gigantic fall from grace as well, very quickly, you know, where the Rats and the, um, 
uh, of that era. They kind of hung around a little bit and got through the late 80s. Quiet Riot just went off a cliff immediately. Quiet Riot didn't make it through the early 80s. <laughs> no, exactly. So, yeah, I mean, you know, they, they just – but I heard Kevin Dubrow at that point was a very difficult guy to div- uh, uh, deal with, rest his soul. I think Frankie yes. – Man- have you seen the documentary Frankie Manali did about Quiet Riot? You're speaking my language. No, I have not. You have something to do tonight. You're welcome. Yeah. You're going to see him after going to Kevin's mom to uh, uh, wish for her blessing to carry on the name. Go try out singers, and it's all documented. And they try a couple singers, and it's train wrecks. Go watch the Quiet Riot wow. document. It is fascinating, my brother. Fascinating. I would watch a documentary about just metal bands that have carried on with like less than three original members. Oh, because that is such a. I love it. Tough... Speaks to us. It speaks. I watched a documentary about a band who didn't make it, and it's called like Slow Lane or something. I can't remember the name, but it's on. It's on Netflix, or it might be on iTunes. And they're they're a band from Florida, and they you know they they almost got to deal with Jason Flom, who signed us at Atlantic Records, and they were this mm-hmm. close, and they have all this footage. So I'll watch. I'll watch a documentary about a band that nobody's ever heard of. That's how. That's how. how sorry, my life is. <laughs> Well, speaking of bands that nobody's ever heard of, I would guess that most people listening to this would um, be familiar with a song by this act that I'm about to play. But I I, I don't think um, nobody knows the, the failed follow up single. And I don't think most people would even be able to name the act. My guess is you will be able to. Um, Dustin Hoffman was a huge fan, which is kind of a hint. Hold on one second here. I think the band's name was Tough Luck of the documentary I'm talking about. Sorry. Okay, the uh, guys out of uh, Florida. Yeah, that didn't make it, but have a ton of like you know footage. And it's a it's a die. It's great. Tough spelled T U F F, of course. Duh. <laughs> I believe that's how it's spelled, Mark. <laughs> Hold on. I mean, I am grasping at straws, but I'm going to see the Bell Stars. Wow, you are good. <laughs> and what movie were they in the soundtrack to Dustin Hoffman? Oh. That is, they had a hit in 1989 with their cover of Ico Ico. Ico Ico, yep. Which is like a traditional, I guess you'd say, like New Orleans song. Ico name. Yeah. Right. Um, hit number 14 in 1989 after being released as a single from the Rain Man soundtrack. Rain Man soundtrack. I don't – well, I might have got to it because the gang vocals were what the Bell Stars were all about. There was no harmonies. It was just like, hey, know, the ba- hey. You know, the, you know, the Bananarama. When the Bananarama. Singing in unison. Without the harmonies. Exactly. You know? Spice so. Girls. There's a proud tradition of British girl groups that don't sing in harmony. They all just sing the same thing like chicks at the mall. And, and you know what? They haven't had one in a while, so Simon Cowell or whoever, man, it's time to, to, to put one together. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I might have got it without the Dustin Hoffman hit, but that was a big one. That was a big one. So they, the Bell Stars released that song on uh, – wait, I want to get this right. That song came out in, like, 82 and did not do very much. And then – oh, they were on Stiff Records. Stiff Records, which very punk rock label, so they obviously so have a punk rock pedigree. Yeah, you know exactly. You know what's even crazier? Having a band have a cover song on a soundtrack, meaning like you didn't even you didn't even sell your own record. You had a cover song on a soundtrack. I mean, which which you know dilutes the money, whatever, even more. You know, mm-hmm. or makes it less impressive. You know, you didn't have a you didn't have a cover like Orgy and cover Blue Monday and then go platinum off your cover. You covered a song, it had a hit, and then the soundtrack was someone else's. Success. Do you know what I'm saying? I know exactly what you're saying. But in it, it, you, that, uh, I don't know if it was the original front lady or one of the members of uh, the Bell Stars put together another act and took them on the road. The Bell Stars are back on the strength of uh, the success of a single that they had recorded seven years earlier. So that is the silver lining. 
God bless. And, and I look at some of those rewind festivals, which are like the 80s things, uh, 80s festivals in Europe, and the Bell Stars are always playing them. So there you go. You can make a living off one song you didn't write on a soundtrack. <laughs> if you're a hot chick from England. <laughs> yeah. So as I mentioned, I was inspired to do this uh this angle this week because I was listening to this countdown from 1989 and I heard two different one hit wonders that were covers. Here's the other one. I will be very impressed if you can identify this gentleman right here. I think you got the idea there. Well, I'll be grasping at straws again, but I'm going by the timeline. You say late 89-ish. 89. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to go Michael Damien. Boom. Well got done. it? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Dude, because it's just the production. I think mm -hmm. of Rock On. I thought you know, I, I could hear it. So, man, I'm, look, I'm, I'm, I'm impressing myself right now. Believe me. That's right. The uh, the uh, Rock On. Who was that? Tommy Bolin. I forget who originally. It was David Essex. That. David That's Essex. Exactly right. Yeah. Exactly right. And Michael Damien, who I think was there was a little thing there in the eighties where a soap star could legitimately become Rick Springfield. Awesome. Rick Springfield started that whole thing. Rick Springfield, Gloria Loring, a Jack Wagner. All I need is just a little more time. That's Jack Wagner. That's Jack Wagner. Yeah, Man. number one was number one song. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a banger. That was a that was a, a White Zinfandel hit. That thing slaps, dude. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, I think Michael Damon might have been the last one they let in. Yeah, that you know, so. soap opera pop thing, and then we went, we had enough. You know, yeah. And well, that was the eighties. Nirvana killed them too. I, I, they did. And, you know, ironically, you know Josh Freeze, right? One of the best drummers in the world. Super drummer, yep. One of his first professional gigs, playing drums on that tour with Michael Damon. He's probably 15, 16 years old. No kidding. Isn't that crazy? He played drums for Michael Damon. And he was playing in the Vandals at the same time. So it was just such a, <laughs> such a beautiful juxtaposition. Okay, so I mentioned that when I started doing research into this topic, there were a couple of things that really struck me, none more so than this next band right here. I don't think you're going to know the song. I am positive you're going to be able to identify the artist. Uh, well, I mean, let me play a little bit of it, and then and then we'll talk about them. But the cover was a hit, correct? We're still sticking with that. Cover's a, cover's a massive hit. Okay. That's UB40. That is UB40. And yes. I know, Mark, what you're thinking, but UB40 weren't a one-hit wonder. They had all kinds of hits. They had all kinds of covers. <laughs> they had five hit songs. Each and every one of them was a cover. I never noticed that. That's incredible. I mean, you read Red Wine, obviously Neil Diamond's song. Um, please don't let please. Uh, that, that, that was an original. Please don't make me cry. An I knew original, that song. An original, yes, a hit, no. That, that did not chart in America. It charted in Mark McGrath's bedroom, though. For sure, I, I listened to the hell out of. Well, I'm I, sure you. I'm sure you got the Labor of Love album. I love UB40, and I have always have. And K Rock again played a healthy staple. You know what's so funny too? Even a duet he did with Chrissy Hine was a cover. I got you, babe. I'm, I'm telling that? you, dude, Mark. I don't know how I didn't ever put this together across two decades. <laughs> In 1983, UB40 had a number one hit with Red Red Wine, which is a, a Neil Diamond cover, right? Um, in 1985, they hit number 28 with I Got You, Babe, featuring Chrissy Hine of The Pretenders. And then uh, in 1990, they hit number seven with Here I Am, an Al Green cover. Come and take me, right? Yep. Take me by the and. We yep. all love how we take have Take me by the and. Yep. Right. Yep. And then number six, the way that you do the things you do. Can't believe that. My, you're blowing my mind right now. And then and went it, to number it, one. In 1990, 
they uh, so rather in 91 they had a number one hit in the u.s with i can't help falling in love with you i you're blowing my fragile eggshell mind right now dude, <laughs> I've, been to, I've been listening to the doors all week it's so funny i've been driving up to i've been driving up to <laughs> To, to to Jason Ellis's house, and on the way, I pass uh, I pass Love Street. She lives on Love, Love, Love Street. So I'm like, screw it, I'll just bang out the discography real quick here. There's well, some. It's kind of cool when you pass those landmarks and you're yeah. listening to like where Jim Morrison wrote that song. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but but dude, I I I I'm such a fan of you before, and you have so many hits to me that I've never simplified it to the fact that they have six gigantic hits <laughs> that are all covers. Yeah. That that must be a record. It must it's, be like it. It has to be the uh, and then the follow up to "I Can't Help Falling in Love with You" hit number forty five is higher ground. I mean, by then I think they knew that a we cannot chart in America with um, <laughs> with an original. originals and and b we can't miss in America with a cover. <laughs> oh man! And look, they're still playing amphitheaters because of these covers, you know. Uh, and that's uh, yeah. what their set list looks like. Oh, we can't leave that out either. Ah, oh, we can't leave that. I mean, you think people are sick of playing their own songs. You know what right. I mean? Imagine how they feel about a Neil Diamond song that hit number one in 1983. I wonder who's the most uh, recorded uh, artist who has done covers uh, that's had success. I know I'm not saying that properly, but I mean, Neil Diamond had success with, you know, uh, I'm a Believer, Red Red Wine. I wonder who's the most covered artists that tried to release these songs himself that had the most success with other artists doing their songs. Wait, who's the person for whom the most artists have had hits with their songs? That they released themselves. Yeah. I mean, it yeah. could be something they just wrote and had in their back pocket. No, I understand. I understand. Yeah. The Beatles would seem to be strong contenders for something like that. Good point. Good point. But off the top of your head, what's the big hit song that was a cover of the Beatles? Yeah, I mean, well, they say that yesterday is the most covered song of all time, but I've never, I don't yeah, think anybody said it. I think Jose Feliciano has had a couple of good hits because he, you know, he interpreted them in his way, you know, yeah. but I can't think of how really great, has there been a great, I, I, has there been a hit covered Beatles song? Has there been one? I guess Come like, Together, Come Together, right? Was Aerosmith was pretty big? Aerosmith, yeah. Um, was it top 10 big though, you know? I don't know about that. I'll look that up while I play you one more uh, pretty bad song. See if you can guess this person who had one hit with a cover. We've discussed this artist and uh, are using air quotes around artist and this uh, hit song. <laughs> You got that one? That would be Bruno is back, right? The return of Bruno, yeah. Bruce the, Willis, man. The follow-up single to the very successful, top five, I think, Respect Yourself, was the far less successful Young Blood. Was that really a top five song, Respect Yourself? I'll let you know. I, I remember seeing the video. MTV killed that video. I remember they were really running that thing. Respect Yourself hit number five, Young Blood topped out at number 68. And then he tried another cover that also didn't do very well, did not crack the top 40 after after uh, Young Blood. Bruce Willis, Bruce Willis can say, I have a top five single. I mean, the I mean, it's hubris. The it's hubris, hubris of that album. <laughs> I wonder if that record uh, like went gold. I mean, I wonder if there's a gold record in one of the thousand rooms of Bruce uh, has in his like Aspen mansion. You know what I mean? Well, in those days, Mark, you know, as well as I do, if that album didn't go gold, that album still went gold. That album went gold. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> there might be 400,000 in a Warner brothers warehouse in, in the Valley, but that yeah. album went gold. Man. They're sitting right next to where Indiana Jones left the Ark of the covenant. <laughs> That is so true, man. Oh, that's amazing. All right. Well, I had a few more of these I wanted to talk to you about, but we are once again out of time. Ah, dude, where does time go? I know. I thank you, as always, for your time. You are at Mark underscore McGrath. Mark McGrath 120. Uh-oh, I've got children. (laughs) (laughs) Children. I do have to go. Uh, Mark McGrath 120. Heard weekends on the 90s on 9 here on SiriusXM. Thank you, and uh, let's do this again soon. Always a pleasure, Tully. Always available.